Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast, brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. I am Scott Guthrie, a neonatologist who works with TIPQC. One of the things that I like so much about these podcasts are the interesting people we get to sit down and have conversations with about topics that can help improve care for mothers and babies not only in Tennessee, but anywhere else this podcast is being listened to. Today's discussion is going to focus on addiction. So we get to sit down and have a conversation with one of my old medical school buddies, Dr. Stephen Lloyd. Steve, man, it is such a pleasure to actually sit down with you today and talk to you about this. You want to tell everybody hi real quick? Absolutely. Hello, everybody. And and Scott, from the time that I got the inquiry you sent till today, I've been so excited to get to talk to you. It's great to see you. Man, it is so good to see you, too. I'm not going to tell everybody when we graduated medical school. Let's just say it was in the last millennium, though. So uh, that makes us sound a little bit old, Steve. But man, it has been uh, so... It's gone fast, as you know. It has. Putting it in the last millennium is, is kind of sobering, but I got you. <laughs> yeah, and it's been so fun keeping up uh, with your career and watching all that you have done over the, the past couple decades since we graduated. So Dr. Lloyd is no stranger to Tennesseans. He currently serves as a chief medical officer of CETL Recovery, an addiction treatment company headquartered in Mount Juliet, Tennessee, serving patients across Middle Tennessee. On top of his work for CEDAR, He is currently a member of the Tennessee Board of Medical Examiners, as well as serving as a federal expert witness. He's a nationally recognized thought leader and clinician. Dr. Lloyd has decades of experience in internal medicine, mental health, and substance abuse services. His background includes serving as a medical director and assistant commissioner for substance abuse services with the Tennessee Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services. Dr. Lloyd has been in recovery since 2004. He's experienced addiction firsthand, and this has allowed him to develop a unique approach to patient care that is passionate, effective, and impactful. His daily goal is to help as many people receive the quality treatment they deserve in order for them to feel better, get better, and stay better. So again, Steve, man, it is so wonderful having you on the show today. And I'm thinking back at medical school and all the fun we had and and times we had together I mean, of course, we were studying, we were working hard, but man, we would like blow off some steam together as well. And I remember a lot of times, like you would be the designated driver at a lot of those events to help everybody out that was uh, it was enjoying medical school a little too much. Tell me how you got involved in addiction and then specifically your own story. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm so glad you brought that up, Scott. I, I uh and there was, I did not drink all through medical school. And, and, um, I had written, the truth is that I'd always struggled with alcohol, you know, really since the first time I'd ever experimented with it as a, as a teenager, I'd never drank successfully. And, 
and knew that I probably had alcoholism. And, and so when we started medical school, and I know you remember this well, the very first day we have to stand up, uh, not in alphabetical order, as they call our name, and say something about ourselves. And I know you remember it like I do. And I remember that day, all of you guys standing up and introducing yourselves. And it was the most impressive group of people that I'd ever met in my life. And I remember sitting there thinking, you know, Bob Larry's one of our classmates was a test pilot on the stealth bomber, you know? Yeah, he was the top gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, top gun guy. And so I was sitting there listening to you guys and and just thinking, you know, what in the world am I doing here? And I was scared. I was scared I wasn't going to be able to pass. And I certainly didn't feel like I belonged in that group. And then the second, I guess the second week of medical school, you all elected me your class president. And yep. I never wanted to embarrass you. Uh, this was a group of people that I'd never been around before in my life. And I was so impressed with, and I never wanted to embarrass you. And I was your representative and I was not going to let anybody see me do anything that would embarrass any of you all. And so the entire four years of medical school, I never, uh, I never had a single substance in my body whatsoever, not a sip of beer, wine, nothing. And uh, I always enjoyed myself and I loved my classmates. I still love you all. And so that's the story behind that. And I didn't drink all through school. Matter of fact, I don't think you did either. But, you know, oftentimes you and I were the only people that didn't partake of alcohol when we were together. But that was the backstory and the reason behind it. Wow. So uh, catch me up on, on what's going on in your life. The past few years since we've got a chance to sit down and talk and how you got, got interested in addiction medicine and your own experiences. Well, yeah, the interest, interest in addiction medicine happened uh, really as a result of some things that happened right after we graduated. And I think that's something that the students out there don't understand is what a special time medical school is and, mm -hmm. and what it can be. And I love you guys. I told you that. I meant it. Uh, I followed you all as well. And so what happened at the end of medical school is that we all spread to the four corners of earth for residency. And then all of a sudden, my support system and the thing that I had been really living for outside of my family was gone. And, and I picked up alcohol just a little while after and had so many people tell me, oh, Steve, you really don't have a problem. We ne we've never seen you drink. And, you know, they didn't know. And I listened to it and believed that I didn't have a problem and it didn't go well. And then, you know, as I got into residency, I skipped the last year of residency, although we graduated, I'm mean, sorry, last year of medical school and, and started residency. So I was actually a year ahead mm -hmm. when it came to overall training. And at the start of my chief resident year, uh, I was on my way home from work one day and life was tough, no work hour restrictions and, and that kind of thing. And uh, I, uh, on the way home, I opened the glove box in my truck and I had some old Norcos in there, hydrocodone or Vicodin. And I remember looking at them because I got them from a dentist and didn't think anything about it, just threw them in my glove compartment. And I remember thinking, you know, my patients take these all, all the time, Scott. And I broke one in half and threw it in my mouth. And by the time I got home, you know, 10 minutes later, my life was better. You know, I liked my wife better. My job wasn't as hard. My kids were better behaved. And, you know, the truth is there's nothing that changed. But the healing effect of that hydrocodone on the areas of my brain that sense pain, and I didn't realize that that area doesn't differentiate between emotional and physical pain, and my life was better. And so over the next three years, my use went from that two and a half milligrams of hydrocodone to about 500 milligrams of Oxycontin and about eight milligrams of Xanax every day. And I did not intend for that to happen. And I couldn't quit. And, um, you know, I didn't have any negative consequences. I was doing great at work and really had no idea that my genetics and my history of childhood trauma, which included both physical and sexual abuse, uh, put me at risk to develop an addiction that I did not see coming. And that's where my interest started was actually from my own addiction. Wow. So what is going on with your 
career at this point, your family life at this point? How did this all come to a head where you realize I've got to, I've got to take care of this? My career, Scott, was going great. This was in my first three years as an attending. The graduating students from our school at Quillen, where I was working, uh, voted me the best teacher in internal medicine all three years, and I was the best teacher in the school the last year uh, at graduation. <laughs> wow. And here's here's a little bit of a sad story. At, at that last year of graduation, and this was in May in 2004, and I went to treatment in, in July of 2004, I was named the mentor of the year by the graduating medical students, and we had you know 200-plus faculty members. And during that ceremony, I went to the bathroom and used 280 milligrams of OxyContin during the ceremony. And so on the outside, things looked great. On the inside, I was dying. I, I really thought I would just die and nobody would ever know until I did my autopsy. And it was a terrible way to live. My home life was not what it needed to be. I wasn't a very good husband. I was probably even a worse dad. And so work is the last thing to go. You know, I kept telling myself, you know, I'm doing great at work. I'm the top producer in our practice. My academic career is advancing. The students love the job that I do teaching. So I'm okay. And and it was really, you know, Scott, me lying to myself. Uh, I wasn't okay. And the rest of my life was really coming apart at the seams. So how did it come to a head? What was that, that yeah, you know, moment? I, what I was just, that, what was coming apart at the seams that you like just realized I've got to get this taken care of? Because obviously you're, you're doing such a good job at being wonderfully successful and hiding this from everyone, but yeah, something's going on. It's a bad place to be, Scott. You know, I went to bed half the nights praying that I wouldn't die and the other half praying that I would. It's about as dark a place as you can be because I wanted to be a good father. I wanted to be a good husband and I was neither. So, you know, my wife, Karen, and Mm -hmm. I'd see Karen praying at night and I could almost see the look on her face like, God, something's wrong and I don't know what. And that was what was wrong. I lost a lot of weight. I'm 6'2", you know, um, and I'm not a little guy. And I lost down to about 165 pounds, so looked almost emaciated. And my dad is the one who recognized it and started to investigate it and, and, and finally confronted me. And when he confronted me, I looked at him and said, Dad, I'm going to lose everything I got. And I said, I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to lose my cars. I'll lose my medical license. And, and Scott, he looked at me and he, he put his hand on my knee. We, we were both crying at this point. And he said, Steve, he said, none of that stuff's going to do you any good if you're dead. And I... It's been almost 19 years. We're coming up on July right now. And I still don't have a logical answer for that one because he was right. And I decided that that no matter what it took, I was going to get somebody to help me and see if I could get better. And luckily for me, I live in the state of Tennessee. And we have this organization called the Tennessee Medical Foundation that really saved my life. A guy named Roland Gray and now Michael Barron. But um, they stepped into my life, guided me towards treatment. And I got in a, uh, came to Nashville, a place called CPE, the Center for Professional Excellence, and a, a, a PhD therapist, Chip Dodd, saved my life, taught me a new way to live, and put me on the path to why I'm talking to you here today. So yes. uh, I was very fortunate, Scott, that I was a doctor. I had the resources. I didn't lose my job. And ironically, you know, you said in my intro that that I'm on the board of medical examiners. I'm actually the vice president, and and I can't tell you how many meetings I sit there in my chair and go, I should be in front of the board instead of on the board. But, you know, things that I never saw coming. And then in my work in the field that you and I are getting ready to discuss all came about as a result of my own addiction, because when I got help, I wanted to learn everything I could about what was wrong with me. And I actually did that and still do that today. Yeah. So explain that, that process a little bit of what you went through with the Tennessee Medical Foundation and 
and learning about yourself and why you were predisposed to having these addictions and then, then link it into how are you using this information to help other people? So Scott, the longest time in my addiction, and you, you said the words perfectly, you know, living the secret life. And I thought that, you know, I thought that the addiction was secondary to some moral failing or hole I had in me. And, and I couldn't let anybody know I was a doctor in my hometown, you know, first person in my family ever graduate college, all that stuff. And, I just couldn't let anybody know. I didn't have any idea that, you know, addiction is a, is a disease, you know, like a lot of other diseases, diabetes, hypertension, and it's a result of genetics, environment, and opportunity, just like other diseases. And I had no clue of any of that. And, and as I started to learn that, it really helped the shame start to lift off of me. I'm not telling you that, that I'm proud of the things I've done, but I will tell you this. I wouldn't change them because they helped me get where I am today. I would change the harm that I caused to some people for sure, but I wouldn't change the path that I took. And so as I learned about addiction, it dawned on me that there was a lot of people out there that were in my situation that thought the same things I did. And, and I'm actually an MD and I actually still have a medical license. And so not only that, I'm teaching in medical school and, and Scott, I know you remember this, you know, how much, how much training did we get on addiction and the proper prescribing of controlled substance? I mean, none, right? None, zero. Yeah, none. <laughs> and, uh, Fortunately, that's changed too. So, it has, it has, thankfully. But there was a Nashville legend, a doctor here in Nashville named Andy Spickard, and I got to be friends with Andy through various different ways. And one of them was in the prescribing course that I took at Vanderbilt. And Andy told me when I left, he said, "Steve, you're still you're still a professor. Go teach this. Take this." And I actually did. And I love Andy. I miss him. He died just a couple of years ago. But Andy challenged me to do that, and. And so I took it back to our school first, Scott, in East Tennessee, at East Tennessee State. And then people got interested. They wanted to know about proper prescribing. They wanted to learn more about addiction. And I wanted to be able to teach addiction to where I could walk into a room full of doctors and, and, and neonatologists and pediatricians and Ph.D. or into the uh, Rutherford County Jail. And I didn't want to change my slide deck. And so I wanted to teach people about addiction in a way that they could understand. And so... That's what I set out to do. I became an expert witness, really, a year out of treatment. I was working for the federal government in prescribing cases, which still blows wow. my mind. But we've done, we've done about 25 of them to date. And we're, we're 25 and 0, and we've sent some bad people to prison that need to be in prison. And then I've served as an expert in the, all the opiate abatement money that's becoming available. I was actually one of the experts in those cases. And my job was to show causation how the improper promotion of, of prescription pain medication led to today's current heroin and fentanyl epidemic. And, and Scott, I, I, did, I didn't have that on my career path, buddy. It, it just wasn't there. <laughs> but all of that came about as a result of the work that I've done in addiction and, and what I've learned in real-life experience and in treating patients. So let's, just, let's do a scenario here for a second. So I've got a patient, a mom that I'm taking care of, her baby, and I've I've witnessed that the baby's having withdrawal symptoms. I've been able to talk to the mother, whether I'm the neonatologist or maybe I'm the obstetrician or any other provider that's that's listening to us today talk about this. How do I need to approach that mother or or father if it's a father? What are some things that I can, some tools I can have, some things I can say to them that's going to help them realize they need to get help too? And then what are some places I can send them so they can get help? 
Scott, it's a, it's a great question because what I found out when I started into treating, I really started in treating pregnant women, believe it or not, because very few people back then were doing it. The things that's most important is to establish that empathetic connection in a non-judgmental way. I'm not condoning things at all, but people in that situation, I don't want to be there. Mm-hmm. And most of them have a story like I did. And they have the genetics, they have the childhood trauma, they followed through on the opportunity. They found the thing that made them feel better and it took over their life and they didn't have any control over it. And so we talk about this all the time in my daily work. We want to love people unconditionally. We want to forgive habitually and we want to demonstrate mercy. And that's it. And that's what I think about with every patient. I work in jails and prisons and and I still, you know, I still work uh, as part of the treatment teams that treat, you know, women who are pregnant and that's the foundation and that's the basis And I want to establish that connection. And it's one of the reasons that I love my past history of addiction, because I'm able to establish that connection in a way that I know what it feels like. I know what it's like to wake up every morning and think, if I don't have this today, I'm going to die. I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to sit in a dark room and contemplate taking my own life because I don't see any way out. And if I can convey that to my patient in a way that they can make a connection, then I can start to get them to see that there's a way out for them. And, and Scott, I, you know, when I was early in recovery, I thought, you know, am I going to live my life and go on about my business, which I can, or am I going to use this to try to reach out to others? And I, got, I thought of this, what would you do if you had a disease you never saw anybody get better from? And I was never able to shake that. Yeah. And I decided I was going to live my life openly and I was going to discuss this, even the bad stuff in an effort to connect with patients. So our colleagues out there who are wondering about this, there's all kinds of approaches. I hear people say, oh, I take this tough love approach and the three strikes and you're out approach. And I would support you in that if you can show me one instance where it worked because I never saw it work. What I did see work was was trying to establish a relationship of empathy and understanding and then accountability and direction. And I have seen that work. And so I would encourage you to learn about your patients, learn about their backgrounds, learn about their trauma, learn about their hopes and dreams and what they wanted to be when they were little boys and little girls, and then try to help them find a path that's right for them to help them get there. They may not wind up on a Hulu series, right? Mm -hmm. That's luck. But they may wind up on their version of the Hulu series. And that's what I do. Uh, I really don't do anything fancier than that. If you talk to the people who've heard me speak or or, or seen me with patients and, and want to know, well, there's no secret. I try to do the th- things really that I learned in my Sunday school class. Yeah, it's important. You, there's something else I want to key on. You've mentioned several times adverse childhood experiences, childhood trauma. How much does that play into to struggling with addiction? And, and, and how do we need to approach that when we realize that these things are present? Scott, it's huge. I would argue this on several occasions. I think the adverse childhood experiences study, you know, done back in the early 1990s is the second most important study ever done in the history of medicine. I only place it behind hand washing because of the number of people's lives it's affected. And not only for addiction and mental health issues, but so-called real diseases like hypertension, diabetes, and multiple forms of cancer. And I had no training on it at all. But as you know, the work came out of, of a weight loss doctor in California in the 1980s named Vincent Felitti. And Felitti looked at these women who, mostly women who were struggling with eating disorders and, and really traced it back to trauma. He 
had a list of basically 10 questions around adverse childhood experiences that he unleashed on the Kaiser Permanente Health System and saw that when we get an ACEs score of four and above that our risk for just about everything I've talked about goes almost straight up. And what I've learned through the years is that, and even in my own instance, and you, some of this you may know from reading my stuff, but I have a history of physical and sexual abuse as a child, uh, from molestation to, you know, to violation of forcible rape. And I never knew the impact that it had on my life, my anxiety, my depression, my insecurity, no clue. And it wasn't until I got help with those underlying drivers of my addiction, which was childhood trauma, that, that I got better. And it didn't change any of those things, Scott. They still all happened. Mm-hmm. But they're not the boogeyman in the closet anymore. And I can live my life in a way that I'd never imagined living it. And so I would tell folks that are dealing with, with addiction is that once you undercover these childhood traumas, hooking your patient up with resources to get help with that. And there's a lot of great resources, but really the one that changed my life was something called EMDR. And I didn't know what that was. And when they told me about it, you'll love this, Scott, because you know me. I I listened to it and I said, well, that may work on your average bird, but I'm not your average (laughs) bird. of course. And I really hate that I said that because it's unbelievably self-centered egotistical. And the guy who did it, it's a friend of mine now. He reminds me of that all the time. But it was a way for me to experience that trauma, that post-traumatic stress disorder trauma, without the physiologic reaction that goes with it. And that's really what EMDR does. And, and so EMDR is a great treatment. Yoga is actually a great treatment as well for, for trauma and childhood trauma. But really, EMDR was a separator for me. So those are those of our peers who are working in this field. Medicine is the big controversy, right? Methadone, buprenorphine, I always laugh at that. We can train anybody to do that. It's important, yes. Mm-hmm. We want to help our patients go forward in their lives. And we do that by helping them address the underlying drivers of their addiction. And the biggest one of those is, is childhood trauma. Yeah, and that's where the true healing takes place. I've got a therapy friend. We were talking about EMDR actually goodness, a couple of weeks ago, and she's integrated that into her practice. And yes, healing, <laughs> getting to the source, the root source, the problems that have yeah. led to addiction, I think is so vitally important. So as we're speaking about these underlying things that lead to addiction, what's actually the chemical processes that are occurring in people? So you've had this childhood trauma, you've had this something that you're, you're trying to cover up. What's going on chemically in people and how can we address that as well? Yeah, Scott, you know, I'm a huge fan of biochemistry, okay? Yeah. I mean, just uh, I don't know how I get through day to day without it. But this is actually Our teachers back at ETSU would be very, very happy that we're having this discussion <laughs> talking about biochemistry. This is, this is the only biochemistry you'll ever hear Lee Lloyd talk about. But chronic trauma over time, uh, you live in a heightened state of, of anxiety. And what happens really is, is that we all know that cortisol is the stress hormone. And, and so the adrenal glands are... are are stimulated to, you know, release cortisol at increased levels. And what some people may or may not know about cortisol, cortisol actually decreases dopamine. And dopamine, for our intensive purposes uh, here in addiction, is what we're after when we use substances or processes that, that, you know, give us that euphoric feeling. That's dopamine for the most part, norepinephrine and some other things, but dopamine's the driver. So if you have this chronic state of where you're living with elevated levels of cortisol and a few other chemicals, but cortisol is the most important one, and it's decreasing the chemical 
that brings you pleasure through natural things. Like I'm looking at your wall behind you, Scott, and I see numerous pictures of you and your kids. When you're in those pictures with those kids and your wife at those times, you have a dopamine release that's giving you pleasure and allow you to be in human connection. It's rewarding. It's positive. Imagine what you would be if your dopamine levels were chronically depressed from an elevated level secondary to trauma. And then, you know, on our, on our emotional scale, Tigger's up here and Eeyore's down low. We're living closer to Eeyore than we are Tigger. And over time, we find things that bring our dopamine levels up to closer to Tigger than Eeyore because nobody wants to live like Eeyore. And a lot of times that's chemicals or food or processes like gambling or internet pornography or, or basically the internet in general, right? Social media would be a way mm-hmm. to do it. And, and so all these things are tied together in the brain pathways of reward and then executive function in the frontal lobe with insight, judgment, and empathy. So that's really the chemical process behind it. But with time in addiction, you lose access to the frontal lobe of your brain, which is about insight, judgment, and empathy. And you're driven solely by that reward axis that we just talked about. And so you can start to see how you would start to make decisions that probably the normal person would look at and go, well, that's ridiculous. That's a terrible decision. Of course it is. And what you have to remember when you're dealing with addiction is people don't have full access to those higher levels of functioning with regards to insight, judgment, and empathy. Now, the good news for us and everybody, and me in particular, is with time away from the drugs or the process that that executive function uh, returns. But it takes about two years to get back to normal. And the big driver for relapse is actually cravings. And so it's why when I talk about addiction, I always have to address medication because there's a great benefit of medication, even though people say you're switching one drug for another. I can show you how you're not. But but at any rate, it quells cravings and it allows us to keep our patients in the addiction treatment process for a longer period of time and gives them a better chance at long term recovery. Yeah. So describe to me if, if I've got a patient that's dealing with addiction. I mean, we've we've hit on multiple things. We've hit on dealing with underlying causes. We're talking about medical problems. What else would be involved in a complete treatment program? I mean, what all did you go through over this this period to get you to where you are today? Well, the, the, the big thing I talk about, if, if Steve Lloyd has a tagline, here it is. Uh, the opposite of addiction is not recovery. The opposite of addiction is community and relationship. That's a fact. Yeah. And even though I have to talk about medication so much, I hate it, Scott, because I'm a prevention guy and I'm a community guy and I'm a relationship guy. And I can tell you just getting to talk to you and see you on this computer screen, I feel good. This feels good. And it that's does. what it's about. It does. And you know that and, and I know it. And, it. and it's that feeling you get when you, you know, you share something in common with somebody from the past and you get to see them again. And, and God made us to be in relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and we know that. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so that's the tagline. It's also the truth. But I got lucky because the other thing I talk a lot about are these so-called social determinants of health. And it's really Maslow, Scott. I mean, you, you can't delve into somebody's childhood trauma until they've got a safe place to sleep. They have a food supply, a way to make a living. And I really think that's where our faith-based community comes in. The largest untapped resource in the state of Tennessee is our faith-based community. And if we can engage our faith-based community in recovery support services and social determinants of health, we'll move the needle forward and we'll also build a sense of community and relationship. So for me, I had a lot of those things. You know, I have friends like I could have called you at the depths of my addiction and you would have helped me. There is no question. Yeah, definitely. And I probably had 50 friends like that. But I had these things, right? I've got an MD degree and I have the potential to make a living, a very good living. And so I'm not worried about where I'm sleeping tonight or where my next meal's coming from. But a lot of our patients are. 
And I think one of the mistakes we make early on in the addiction process is we want to jump straight to those childhood trauma things when we really need to focus on these basic supports, these Maslow, mm-hmm. right? Straight from the 1940s. Yeah, getting people into community. Yeah. 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 Having them have a sense of belonging, I think, can, I think address a, a lot. You've got another great tagline, too. You've been quoted as saying, I believe that no one is beyond saving. There are countless ways to recovery from opioid addiction. My goal is to help people find the path that's best for them. Yep. What might those various paths look like? Anyone that they take, Scott. Uh, you know, when I first got into recovery, I was really arrogant. I thought everybody will have to do the same thing I did and look how successful I've been without understanding that I had all of these advantages and my path was my path. And a lot of people don't have those advantages. And you'll appreciate this. I sat up one night in the bed with Karen right next to me. And I looked at her when I had this epiphany moment. I said, Karen, I'm an arrogant ass. And she said, yes, really quick. (laughs) And it dawned on me that night. And, you know, as a reflecting on my day that most people don't have those resources. And so I started to change my mind on some key issues and, and really, I realized that my job was to meet my patient where they are, no matter what. And and Scott, Mm -hmm. I live by that. I meet them where they are. I don't care if it's on the street corner, if it's in an alleyway, if it's in a a jail cell, if it's in an intake hold, if it's in the hospital emergency room, I meet them where they are under their circumstances. And I try my best to figure out a way to help them find the path that's right for them. And some people, that's medication. Some people I have to really get stable on medication. And it takes me months to do that before we can talk about a single other issue. Hmm. And that's okay because we have to keep people alive. And I tell people all the time, I have not figured out a way to treat dead people. I don't know how to do that, but I have figured out a way to keep people alive long enough so that we can start to help them build a life that they dreamed of at one time in their life. And I don't care what that is. I'm a harm reductionist. I believe in, in syringe service programs. I believe in in Narcan, I believe in uh, prevention and the hallmark of that prevention around the field that you and I work in is voluntary reversible long acting contraception. Never thought I would know anything at all about any of that or even what that term meant. But the importance of helping our young women understand that they do have options around that and that that we need to make it available and we need to be there to help them through the process and help them understand the importance of it and the risk and benefits of it and be willing to support them in their decision-making as well. Yeah. So Steve, as we get ready to wrap this up, tell me like one huge memorable success story that you've had with, and I'm sure you've had countless over the years, but what, what's one story that you could leave us with of, uh, of somebody that you've worked with? I met Kanitha, oh gosh, I don't know, 15 years ago. And I watched her. I met her where she was. A ton of childhood trauma, a ton of genetics. She slipped uh, more times than I can count, but I didn't run. I showed up, and anytime she was ready, we tried again. And we tried for a really long time, and she would have periods where she did well and other periods where I would lose her, but I would get her back. And and I'm a prodigal son guy, Scott. I love the prodigal son story. So anytime I get him back, I got a smile on my face. And and I got Kamnitha back, and she did well, and then I lost her. For a long period of time. And about a year and a half ago, Heath comes to me, my son, and says, tells me about this wonderful project going on at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville's emergency department. 
and they're helping people who've overdosed and they're linking them up with treatment straight out of the emergency department. And they're using something called recovery navigators. And there's this recovery navigator that he talked to up there. And as soon as uh, he told her who he was, he was, she said, please tell him to call me. I said, what's your name? Heath? He said, her name is Kenny. Oh, wow. Wow. That's good. So he she's, said, she's uh, turned around and helping people just like you helped her. Yep. He That's said that. He said, uh, the young lady who's the recovery navigator at UT Knoxville, her name is Kenneth, and she said she knows you. Would you call her? And I said, you're damn straight, I will. <laughs> and I called Kenneth, and I got to talk to her. And not long, we had an event in Knoxville, and she came to it. And I got to see her after it was over with and hug her and reconnect with her. And she told me that when she was first with me, that she didn't get recovery, and she didn't latch on to it right then. But the things that, that we planted in her and the fact that we loved her and showed up, and didn't give up, inspired her to go on. And she did get recovery. And that she moved to Knoxville from the Tri-Cities where I was working at the time and got involved in a really good recovery community and went back to school. Wow. <laughs> and, wow. and she's working for uh, Helen Ross McNabb in Knoxville as a recovery navigator, helping people who have overdosed uh, just like she did. I don't know about you, Scott, but that's why I went to med school, brother. Yeah. Yeah. You just gave me chills, Steve. I mean, I think that's the power of getting to know our patients and willing to meet people where they're at and investing a little bit of our lives into them to, to, to really, really bring healing and really, really make a difference, not only in, in their lives, but you think generationally about how that's going to change her and her family and then all the people that she's touching that she may be able to replicate exactly what you did in her to change, change that life. Wow, Steve, man, I have so enjoyed sitting down and talking with you today, catching up. And I've got to ask you, like my, and I, I can tell already, this is going to, you're going to give me an incredible answer. This is like the question I always end these podcasts with. I want you to imagine somebody's giving you a big billboard somewhere going in and out of Nashville, Knoxville. Oh, we're going to give you one in Memphis and Chattanooga as well. And you can put anything on that billboard that you want to inspire the thousands and thousands of people driving by it every day. And it could be something about what we've talked about or just any inspirational life quote or saying that you live by that you would want to share with other people. What would that be? I've already talked about it. And then it's this one. It's, it's the thing that when I'm still, when I'm teaching students about this, it's the thing that we start with and that's to love, love unconditionally. Yeah, I live my life by that way every day, Scott. And sometimes I have people that they're tough to love. But if I can love them unconditionally, I can be available to help them when they're ready. And the story of Kanitha is that, that very thing, the thing that I don't give up on. I'm not the best doctor in the world. I'm, I'm probably average to below average. That is a fact. Uh, I don't know about but that. What I, what, I, what I am not below average on. I am not below average on loving people unconditionally. I do not give up. I don't care how many times it takes. If I can keep you alive, then I'm going to try again. And I believe that with everything I got. And I think that if we took that approach in general, with everything going on in our world today, how much a different place it would be regardless of substance use or not. But I want to, that's my tagline. It's what I live by where I'm sitting in this room in my office right now. It's on the wall right in front of me. That is, that is it. That is what we do. 
And I encourage our peers who are working in this field to think about that and what that looks like in your practices. Yeah, not only in this field, but I think every relationship that we have, every opportunity we have to interact with another human being, if we were to just love unconditionally, that would most definitely change the world. Steve, man, so good to sit down and talk with you today. I so much appreciate it to our listeners. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee, brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee, presented by TIPQC. TIPQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.